This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, Welcome everybody to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe in pursuing customer perceived value in everything you do and every part of your company. Today, I am thrilled to have John Morgan. Uh, John is the dean of one of six schools at Yavapai College. Uh, his school is the School of Career and Technical Education, uh, which is one of six schools at Yavapai College. Yavapai College is one of 1167 community colleges in the country. I just Googled that. Uh, and it's in Prescott, Arizona, a town of 46,000 people or so, uh, which is in a county of 241,000, which sounds big until you realize that it, by area, it is the 21st largest county in the country with 8.1 million square miles, which means 241,000 people in 8 million square miles is not a very uh, densely populated county. John, welcome. Oh, thanks, Mark. Glad to be here today. Um, so we met when I was uh, up in Prescott for a CEO retreat, and uh, they were so impressed with what you do up at Yavapai College that they uh, had you come out and tour, and you happened to be the guy leading my tour. So uh, I um, buttonholed you and, and, and uh, lassoed you into this podcast, and I couldn't be happier that you accepted Oh, this is an exciting time for us. I mean, we uh, we feel like we're uh, very much on the front end of of things here that are that are cutting edge and and transformative in terms of education and and how it's delivered. Yeah, you know, you think of a community college and you think of you know a two year program that's got a um, fender you know fender repair and uh, automotive repair, maybe a diesel mechanic and um, course, but as we were walking around just your college, uh, the career and technical, you've got a bunch of programs that go way outside that. So tell us a little bit about some of the programs that you offer, just top line, some of the, some of the great programs that you offer that kind of, especially the ones that are a little bit uh, out of that uh, normal community college rut. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, we started out when I first got here, um, we had just a lot of traditional programs, which is what you're referring to. I mean, typically in any college, you'll find welding, you'll find automotive, uh, you'll find business programs, things like that, that kind of everyone has. Um, so, you know, I, I was brought on board here to, to start an agriculture program. And that was uh, the first, uh, I think, significant pivot that the college dealt with, because we're 
we're in an area that had a, a lot of ranching, uh, a lot of cattle, and that was sort of on its way out. A lot of the land was getting sold and we were having a different kind of agriculture emerge here, which was really centering around the greenhouse industry. So I had to come in and, and kind of get that going. And a few months into it, leadership said, hey, uh, we want you to continue teaching, but we want you to, to be an associate dean and start looking at building a lot of technical programs here in the college. So I was given a, a really great opportunity to, to do that. And, and so what I've tried to do over the years is, first of all, be um, innovative. That's huge. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, um, to, in order to be innovative, you have to find other sources of uh, dollars, whether it's through partners or whether it's through grant writing, um, because you just can't stay in the game. I mean, we obviously, industry moves at a lightning pace. And in order for the colleges to keep pace, you have to be very creative in how you're going to do that. So one of the, one of the things I realized quickly as a, as a teacher before I became a dean was I, I never had all that I needed uh, to be successful in the classroom. And so very early on, I figured out that uh, there's a lot of money out there, but you have to figure out how to go get it. And you have to be good at um, you know, what you say in proposals to get it and where you're going. And, and we've been very successful there. So some of the programs that you alluded to, you know, we have an electrical instrumentation program that is second to none. And in there, uh, you know, we teach everything from um, um, digital microcircuitry, from low voltage out to very high voltage, three phase 480. Um, we teach robotics in there. We teach uh, a lot of things that they refer to as mechatronics now, that's sort of this buzzword. Uh, we don't use it because the public doesn't know what it means it's better for us to say it's automation. And, and that's exactly what it is. Every company that's coming to our area now, uh, they're looking for, for technicians who can maintain and program automation. And it's everything from companies like Amazon, just for, just for their warehouse shipping, it's fully automated stuff in there, uh, to companies like the mines, like Freeport MacMoran, where uh, they have all kinds of uh, what we call PLCs, programmable logic controllers that drive multi-million dollar production systems. And when they're down, you know, you're losing money. So that program has really risen to the top as this critical need. It's, it's everywhere, anywhere, any type of production is. Um, and we uh, just, we, we got some exceptional faculty who uh, came in and made that program very different in terms of hands-on. It is uh, what we quickly realized was when you're, when you're an automation industry, uh, they need things to be fixed quickly. You can't sit there and diagnose and troubleshoot for hours and days on end because, you know, the, that meter is running. So that program is all built around um, quick diagnosis and fixing quickly. So everything we do in there is time. There's no middle ground. You either can do it in the set time period or you can't. And that has proven to be extremely valuable to industry because the faster that the techs can diagnose complex problems in automation and fix them, that means the company is still cranking out their products. So that's one example, but we have a lot of programs here. We're, we're moving, as you saw, into uh, 3D printing of homes. Um, that, that has to happen, and I'll tell you why. Um, my entire career, I've been at this for 34 years, and I've, there's always been a labor shortage in various parts of the trades. Uh, by that, uh, especially in construction, it's very difficult to find you know, an abundance of workers that want to do framing and roofing and drywall and paint and all of those things. Uh, 3D printing is changing that. And so, you know, the college uh, leadership got on board. They were able to invest in uh, two 3D printers for us. And right now I've got a very 
powerful team of individuals. And this is not just, you know, you're not trying to convert somebody who pounded nails into this. This, this is going to require some education because you have to learn G-code to operate these things. You have to learn software and computer slicing. It's going to require a different kind of technician, um, but they're going to make more. And, and you're not really going to lead, need that real labor. So what we've got to do is we've got to take people that are in the industry and begin to convert them over into a higher tech role because we're going to need plenty of workers in this when it starts. Um, and we did this for two reasons. One, I just couldn't attract students to construction anymore. And the second thing is we have a significant housing cost problem. So we've watched municipalities for years try to address this, and they really haven't for whatever reason. So we've decided, well, let's see how much we can help in that realm and bring in a disruptive technology, but that possibly would revolutionize what we're doing in construction now, building homes faster, a much stronger home. Uh, you know, they're concrete, so they're, you know, they're basically 8.0 earthquake proof, fireproof. Um, it's just going to take a different kind of skilled technician to do this than someone who's used to pounding nails. That part will still remain. I mean, you're going to have what we call stick build homes for years to come. You still have to have finished carpenters come in and do these things. But, um, you know, we can get our walls up um, in, a, in a couple of days that where you won't have to do drywall because your, your concrete will all be colored. You don't have to paint it. You don't have to do layout. There's so many things that, that people have trouble to fill in right now that this technology will embrace. So if we have an idea, you know, we push forward and our leadership has been very supportive on that. Um, and we know we'll be the first program in the nation to teach construction in this. We're, there's a lot of universities researching the materials for this right now. Um, that's a big part of this as well. But, but that's just a couple of examples of places where we were very effective and stand out. Yeah, so John, let's, let's dig a, a little bit into that uh, 3D built homes, which I think is, you know, it's, it's pretty sexy and pretty cool, but the economics of it is really self-apparent when there is, when we're in the great resignation and there's a lot of people who don't want to work, uh, there has been a dearth of construction workers for decades. This is not just a COVID, you know, recent, recently popped up thing. This has been developing um, for decades and 3D printing has been growing for decades. Somebody had the great idea, but um, who asked you and community and, and Yavapai College, how was that? I mean, what was the genesis of that? Was this uh, uh, some leaders at Yavapai saying, hey, there's a labor shortage and here's a technology, let's see what we can do? Or was somebody out, was there a builder who said, hey, we're struggling and maybe this 3D printing can help us with this labor shortage? I mean, who, who asked who first and who suggested what first? Walk us through that, that kind of that process. Sure. Well, what I, I wish I could tell you that I just had all these companies clamoring to come to me and say, let's start 3D printing houses. That wasn't the case at all. Um, this this came, out of, it came from me. It didn't come from leadership or anything else. I had been looking at the decline in our construction program. I had had to close it down for several years because we got down to single-digit students. I then you know, was brought back into a conversation with the local uh, um, contractors association saying, we need you to bring the program back. We need workers. And during that conversation, I had said, guys, look, you know, if you can't get them off the street and train them up yourselves right now and pay them, which is what they were doing, like, and you want to come work for us, come. If you're an able body and enjoy this, we'll pay you and teach you on the job. That wasn't what was happening. So I, I told them, if, if you can't get them, then what makes you think that they're going to come pay tuition at a college 
to learn construction if you're already offering them, you know, a bypass to that. And no one had an answer. So I had, you know, we had, we'd had a strong 3D printing program here for manufacturing already with smaller type printers, but we had never thought about kicking it up. And I, so I got on the web and started doing research. And I realized that um, in, uh, in Europe and in China in particular, that they'd been pushing this envelope for a few years now uh, for similar reasons, uh, even in a country like China, labor shortage on things like that. And um, uh, raw materials is a big issue there because uh, the whole thing with 3D printing is, is can you source all your materials locally? That's another issue. And so the more I read and the more I researched on it, the more I realized that, you know, we're not really scratching the surface here in the United States yet, but I felt like Europe and, and China were forging ahead quickly in it. And it was saving costs, saving time, building actually a better, a better home in the end because of the strength of it. So I started floating, floating it by leadership. And, and basically, um, the current leadership we have said, yeah, let's, let's figure out a way to do it. So they were able to bridge the gap financially because these things aren't cheap right now. We're still paying for the R&D. Yeah. So they bridged the gap financially. And the rest was putting a team together, which I really had in-house already. So I had a construction person. I had two or three people who knew G-code. I had electronics experts. And I had two 3D printing experts. So we found a U.S. company that was an upstart, and we've dealt with them. And, and to be honest, you know, we've, we've had to, uh, to help them quite a bit because everybody's still trying to figure these things out. Um, and then we, we actually got a local company to say, hey, we're all in. And so they bought a machine, and they're partnering with us right now, and we're learning this together, and we're getting ready to launch our first classes. So this, was, this wasn't a, a directive that came from industry. This was basically a response to the fact that Neither one of us could get people. And here's a whole other thing that we think will generate interest. And sure as heck, as soon as we said we're going this way, now our construction programs are full. So there's definitely interest there. And, and the young people, they're born into this. So they, they understand 3D printing. They also understand leisure time and that kind of labor that can tear your body up. Yeah. So they're all over it. But the fascinating part is folks that are our age, you know, boomers or Xers, whatever, they're like, yeah, I see this. This can solve a lot of my problems because I can't get labor and I can't retain labor. So yes. this was that's how that's you know it was a progression of things, a sort of a natural national or a natural progression. I'm sorry, um, of not being able to address the workforce shortage. Yep. So uh, you you blew past the fact that a local company just decided they wanted to try it and they bought a machine. Um, mm -hmm. Let's unpack that. Like local sure. construction company. Yeah, who's so we uh, struggled with labor proposal. or walk, walk us through how that, uh, I mean, it couldn't have been somebody just saw the same videos you did and said, hey, I'm all in. There had to be kind of some study and people understanding how it's going to save them labor and walking through the walking through the arithmetic, walking through uh, the ability to hire these higher terrain techs. So walk yeah. us through how that, how, how they had to be brought on board. Okay. So we started getting a little uh, press and, and stuff when we decided we were going to pursue this. So we, we had some really nice stories in the newspapers some social media things. And then we started getting calls and, and who was calling us was um, developers and contractors. And they were saying, Hey, uh, you know, we, we read where you're going to do this. Uh, tell us about it. So we started having meetings and, and we quickly realized, you know what, there's 
seems to be widespread interest in this. And we were, it was not just our local county. We were getting it from all kinds of places throughout the state in Arizona. You know, I was getting calls from Tucson and Casa Grande, Phoenix. And um, after they saw, after they saw these news stories. So we decided, you know what, we need a partner. We need uh, somebody who's going to go all in on us. So we, we uh, sent out a, a proposal for an RF, for an RFP. And uh, we had several companies submit proposals to us. And we selected a local company that was out of the Birdie Valley. And they were very intrigued by this. We did a couple of presentations. Then they wrote a tremendous proposal. But we had proposals from everywhere, Adam, from Phoenix, different places. But we felt like, hey, here's a local company that appears to be in a position to pivot and do this. And again, their proposal was excellent. So uh, we selected them. And they've been on board lockstep with us ever since. That was the right move to do because now you're taking a company that wants to go all in and do this. And their, their name is We Print Homes. I don't know if I can say their names or not, but I'll say it anyway. Um, and so they're trying to work now on understanding these printers. They ordered a different printer than we do, but the technology is the same. But um, so we're, we're doing test mixes with them. We've got their printer set up on our Chino Valley campus now for them to come in and learn how to use it themselves. And then we'll do a couple of proof of concept uh, homes, one with uh, our printer and one with theirs. And the goal of proof of concept then is we, we've got to see if these will indeed save 30% or so or more potentially on the cost of construction. On paper, it, it should, but we need to prove that out. And so our goal is to build um, ultimately three proof of concept homes on our on our Chino Valley campus and each time get a little better while at the same time launching our program in this in January. Yeah. So we have a good partner. They, they're all in. They're working on, uh, you know, around the international building codes, which should have in them in December, um, 3D printing. And once we get that, then it will no longer be an issue with municipalities trying to figure out, well, how does this apply to the codes? So it'll be in the, in the international building codes in December. Um, but it got more interesting. We were getting calls from developers who had uh, contracts with Amazon and Tesla where they're, they're building subdivisions for them. And of course, they're looking for Cracker Jack, out of the box, newer technology, smart homes. So the deeper we started diving into this, the more we realized the potential is absolutely there. And uh, people are ready. They're ready for this kind of change because it, they just cannot continue on this pace with, uh, with, with labor. I mean, it's set us back two years right now. We're, we're two years behind platted homes to be built where we live here. Yeah. So pe people are embracing it and, and the money's starting to flow. There's big companies like Perry, you know, multi-billion dollar company who's starting to back this. Um, we've had interest from Freeport Mac brand in terms of because they own their towns and they build their own homes where the mines are. And they're thinking this is a better way for them to get that done going forward. So, um, yes, it's picking up momentum and it's, it's awesome right now. Yeah. You know, it's kind of cool being in the middle of you're trying to get local people, jobs, you're trying to provide qualified workers for local business and you, you get to sit in the middle of them. Um, you, you did say something easier, uh, something really uh, interesting, right? If the builders can't hire somebody off the street and pay them right away, how can you expect that, that you'll be able to hire people or get, people, get students who will pay for the privilege of learning? Um, and there's there's always that push pull, but when this it's this technology that nobody knows, uh, you put yourself in a in the middle of a technology innovation, and that 
that doesn't sound like a, a tired old community college. Hats off to you, John. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what we're known for. We have a very strong reputation really throughout the Southwest as a, as a community college that has strong technical programs. And this was just one more one more piece um, that we added to it that, you know, we're, instead of industry bringing this to us, we're going to take it to industry to try to help them. And, uh, and I think people are already seeing this. Yeah, we have a few hurdles that we're still working on. Uh, we have to get lenders on board. Um, our partners actually are working on that because lenders have to see, touch, feel, which is why we need these proof of concepts. But this is emerging. I mean, it's, uh, there's a subdivision in Rancho Cucamonga, California, that's being built right now. There's another in Austin and another in Florida. And Arizona is right there. We have a couple more companies in Phoenix who purchase machines. And they, they've done a proof of concept house in Tempe. So it's coming and That's, we just have to refine it. it. And it's it's not quite as simple as people may think. If you're used to a little small 3D home printer, you can pull all kinds of designs off the web and make something fun. There's a learning curve to this because now you're up, you're stepping up that same process um, and you're controlling, you have to control the materials, which in a standard home 3D printer, you're just feeding it with resin or whatever material right. you're using. This, you have to control it, get it right, deal with the weather, all of that. So what's what's fascinating about anytime these things comes out, come come out, there's always this immediate fear, oh, you're going to displace workers. My response to that is you don't have them now. So we're not displacing anybody. But what you're creating is uh, not only the immediate workers that will operate this, but the downstream workforce that has to be developed, because now you're going to need all the research for these mixes. And everybody's trying to get them to be locally sourced. That's a whole back end set of jobs with that. Um, you, you're now going to have to have people that are, you know, that there's training that's going to have to occur for building inspectors. There's a lot of opportunity for people to emerge in this industry. You're, you're going to have to have techs that can repair these machines, or you're going to have to, well, what we're talking about is creating a program that would teach people how to fix these in the field. Because once you sell these machines and they're not cheap, well, things can happen in the field. And you have to be able to either deploy technicians or you have to be able to have technicians within that company that can fix problems in the field. So we're just seeing this as, uh, as where it's going to go, sky's the limit. Um, you know, and that's what makes it exciting about what we do is uh, this is one where we're truly going to be able to innovate, potentially revolutionize the way things are going in traditional construction right now. And it's, it's pretty cool to be a part of that on the front end. Man, that's, that's really cool, John. So um, I just want to highlight for, for listeners, right? This, this is how you develop new products. This is how you collaborate with customers uh, when you're trying to create value. You're looking at the outcome of the customer, right? It, it would be easy, as you said, to think we're displacing workers, but let's look at the real arithmetic. Uh, we don't have workers now. These are the kind of jobs we're creating. Uh, we're actually creating more rewarding jobs, more desirable jobs, at least, um, for people who to replace jobs that are undesirable, so undesirable that you can't fill them. Um, you're, you're looking at a bigger picture. And that's what a great company, a great value-focused company does. Uh, one of the other things you told, you told, a story you told was that typically a community college will get a request from industry and um, it to, to create a new curriculum and it can take months and months. And 
um, you have, you're kind of famous for not taking months and months. So um, I don't know if you remember the story you told or if, or if you can tell a similar one, but tell us about that, the story of flexibility and customer focus, being customer responsive, because I think that's pretty important stuff. Uh, yeah, I, thanks for bringing that up. That is very important in, in how our model has been successful. Uh, one of the things that, that community colleges can and should be doing is, is be nimble and not get bogged down in bureaucracy. Uh, too many times my peers at other institutions to get something through can take a couple of years. Um, we realized very early on that when a, a company comes to you and says, I need X number of workers um, and I need them by such and such a time, you know, it, it's our obligation to respond as best we can. So we've had some tremendous successes. We started with Freeport Macron. That's a, one of the largest employers in the, in the county up here with mines in Baghdad. And they came to us and said, we have a shortage of workers in three critical areas. Or areas. And it was uh, diesel, diesel technicians, um, electronics and electric, electricians. And then what we call, uh, used to be called millwrights, but it's, it's people that maintain the equipment on the plants. And we met with their corporate and within 90 days, we got with them, determined their needs, and uh, they actually gave us some money. We, we just purchased the SeaTech building here. They gave us some money to get some classrooms built, gave us some equipment. And for the first year, they also paid for the faculty for one year until we could get the program off the ground and, and start getting some revenue. Um, that was huge. But we responded to them in 90 days. And in that one, we had our programs running in six months. That's unprecedented in the, in the collegiate world. I mean, universities even worse. It takes a long time; could take years. So that was our first really quick success story, and then we followed it up later with uh, aviation, um, and we we actually got an aviation program up and running in in forty five days, and then another upstart here, which was a three D company in orthotics. Uh, we got them out of the ground. We actually let them locate their business on our site, and the trade off was you had to take students of ours as they were getting their um, degrees and certificates and provide paid internships on our site. So that one we did again in six weeks and we, we created a full curriculum for that one. Uh, we didn't have the class, we, we had the knowledge they wanted, but we didn't have the classes built. So we came up with some dollars, paid a couple of faculty extra, and six weeks later we were up and running. Now that's as nimble as anybody can be, but that is, you know, fortunately when you have good leadership, you have good vision, you have great faculty, you can do these things, but the will has to be there. And in the great many institutions, um, you know, it, it just takes forever. It's like, you know, I, I say one of the things about education and change sometimes, it's like moving headstones in a graveyard. <laughs> you know, yeah, it takes a while. But, um, but with, what's the joke? How many, yeah. how many higher education administrators does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> what? Change? We don't yeah. change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think you have to be, and, and if you want to keep your faculty fresh and things like that, you have to provide them with the opportunity to stay current. So we're big on training. We, we send our faculty to a lot of different trainings to keep them current. We get out in industry a lot. Uh, we just decided where we, we just discovered a gap in our advisors, our student advisors and counselors could, could not speak to industry well enough to be dangerous. They just didn't know. I mean, they, okay, here's an industry and, and okay and try to get students to it. So we put together five straight weeks of industry tours locally and took them in to see everything. They get to 
talk to the HR reps, see what the wages are, see what the job conditions are, because we want our advisors, as soon as the student's on the hook, we want them to be able to speak clearly. Hey, okay, listen, I know about this industry. I've seen the jobs. Here's the skill set you need. Here's the right program. Here's the wages you can expect, because they'll see them before we do. And so this is all part of being innovative and, and keeping it fresh. And then again, I look at my role as, you know, what do you, what do you need as faculty? And for me, they need me to find resources. They need me to find money uh, so that they can keep their labs state of the art. I and mean, you saw that. Uh, and that's, that's one of the more difficult things in the, in the job, but it's also essential. And had I not been an instructor for many years before that, as an administrator, I probably wouldn't understand that. But as an instructor, um, I always had to find my own way and my own money. And I realized, you know what? That's a big part of what I need to be doing as a dean. Let me get faculty what they need. Yeah. And that, that's it right there. You have those core components and then you get industry involved. And now we have such a plethora of offerings that when industry comes to us, we probably already have a lot of components they want. We just have to figure out how to package it for them specifically. Um, yeah. And that's what's key. That's pretty cool. I, uh, I was really struck with one of the innovative things, right? To keep a great, you have a, a lot of really great, highly qualified instructors. Mm -hmm. um, the the uh, drone instructor has been in SEALs running drones and your electrical in instrumentation instructor, you told us about, you know, he was like the best guy for the job by far. And then he wanted to retire into um, Northern California or something. And so you figure out a way to keep him in the classroom in uh, a rural, small town, Arizona, uh, Prescott, Arizona. Tell us, just tell us that story. Cause that's cool. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's a great story. I mean, uh, so my, my guy that started the electronics program here, he had been an instructor at, at another college for, I think, uh, about 11, 12 years. And then he went and created the, uh, how to, uh, books at home Depot. That was his company. And he got bored with that after 10, 12 years and that and said, you know, I, I really just want to finish my career teaching. I love it. Uh, and he still had, you know, a lot of patents from his books and stuff like that. And, and so we were very fortunate to get him on board. Well, you know, as things go, he built this tremendous program. And then uh, his wife retired before he did. And the grandkids were up, uh, were up north. So they were, they were in Oregon, basically. And he goes, you know, I want to stay. But my wife said, I'm going to Oregon be with the grandkids, whether you are or not, basically. So we, we stepped back and I said, well, what can we do? And he goes, you know, I, I think I can teach this via robot um, from Oregon if you can give me a lab aid. And, and we're like, you know what? That's a really good idea. And it ties into the program well, since it's all about automation and things like that. So uh, got a robot and essentially it's, it's an iPad um, that he can uh, teach live from. So he'll, he'll do his lectures. He does his lectures live, just like in a zoom setting, yeah. like what we're in now, but for the labs, we, we got a, a lab aid, which didn't cost us a lot of money, but got him this robot and he can go up to every single station in the lab when students are working, they can see him talk to him in real time via this iPad robot and he controls it with a little stylus. So he just has to point, you know, he sees the lab, he just has to point in the lab where he wants it to go. And it, cruises right up to the student and he's like, okay, let's, let's take a look. Let's talk about this when they're doing their labs. That that's salvaged a tremendous faculty for me that I was going to lose. Yeah, Cause I mean, his choice was if I don't move to Oregon, my wife's going to go without me. And, and right. we salvaged so, him through technology. So if people can't envision this, um, imagine a miniature Segway or a Roomba, you know, like 
an iPad mounted on a broomstick that's sitting on a Roomba, but now replace the Roomba with a miniature Segway. And then that iPad can be aimed up or down and it's all um, connected to the internet. So there was an episode of The Big Bang Theory where Sheldon uh, taught remotely and he had an iPad on on a Segway and he was walking around this campus. And that's what you got. It, yeah, that's a great analogy. It is sort of like a, a Segway with an iPad on it, but he can control it. And um, we're doing this on two camp- campuses simultaneously, simultaneously now. So we got two of them. We have one here and one in the birdie. And he just, you know, he just needed an additional screen at, at his home. And so now we can teach at two different classrooms. Now he has to figure out how to manage all that. But the point is, the key to this all was we were not prepared to have him retire yet nor was he and um and so we've been able to salvage a few years now he's going to retire we know that and it'll be difficult to to fill but the good thing about this is everything we have is already proven so you know when we can find faculty replace him they're going to come into a system that's already built that's turnkey that's extremely innovative and you know i'm hoping we can get him to be here but if not and i can get someone from afar again i may have to that's the changing climate now because people have figured out how to work remotely and you know COVID actually yep. pushed that forward faster but um, the key was we still had to have a lab we still had to have hands-on components so the cost of us getting a part-time aid was peanuts compared to losing him yeah and the college committed to that and that's rare too because I, I don't think in other institutions I think they would have just said uh, okay well best of luck we'll find somebody else but I was able to make a convincing case to leadership how cool this was, number one, and had direct ties to the program. But number two, of how valuable this guy was. And they knew that they knew it anyway, but they're like, okay, what's your solution? Well, it was a $5,000 solution for the robot and for an aid for the year. I think it cost me 12 bucks for, or 12,000 bucks for a part time aid. That was way worth it to keep who I feel is one of the most innovative instructors in the US on board for a little while longer. So, yeah, it's a, it's a cool thing. And, and uh, at first, we just didn't know how is it going to go. But we had that thing dialed in in two weeks and smooth sailing. So that's the thing is uh, that's the kind of stuff that, that makes us stand out and, and be innovative. And that's what I think a lot more colleges need to to work towards. Yeah. If, if not, you're stuck in a 150 year old model. Yeah. And we're not. John, that. Yeah. John, what a refreshing conversation. What a great conversation. Um, fantastic to, to hear you share all this stuff. We could keep going on and on, uh, but I, th- I think we're about at time. How can people get a hold of you? How can people learn more about Yavapai College? Um, ha- help us out. Give us your contact, your deeds. Sure. So, I mean, I, I'm always available. I do, personally, I do hundreds of tours a year at this place to promote it, but uh, my email is john.morgan at yc.edu. And uh, if you want to call here, my uh, direct line is 928-717-7721. And again, if you know if you call me and if I can't get to you, I guarantee you I can I can get someone who can that'll that'll be knowledgeable and help with any questions you may have. Super, John. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for sharing your approach to value in education. Uh, a real breath of fresh air. And thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that 
sales marketing education is a lot more like brain surgery than you might have thought. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.